And a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. You know, we have, uh, Pope Francis has generated uh, more criticism from the lay faithful than Benedict XVI and Pope John Paul II. And I, you know, look, we, we have to understand that if you look over Catholic history, you're gonna. There are popes that you're gonna have a personal affection for and admire, and sometimes there are popes that you don't necessarily resonate with. Uh, you don't like their prudential calls. Uh, so I try to explain. Don't get too excited about that. You know, in, in my mind, John Paul II was just one of those remarkable men who is going to be, I think, one of the titanic figures of the 20th century. I mean, he is. And I think he'll go down in history that way. And we shouldn't expect that every pope that comes along is going to have the same kind of stature. That's why we call him John Paul the Great. You don't call many people the Great. So, you know, any pope following him is going to have to live with those those comparisons. So the reason I bring that up is because I want to spend time with my friend Steve Ray right now talking about the papacy what the Pope does, why it matters. He and uh, uh, Dennis Walters, another friend of ours, Deacon Dennis, uh, Stephen Dennis, uh, collaborated on a book called The Papacy, which is published by Ignatius. And uh, you know Steve well. He leads pilgrimages to the Holy Land, Rome, other sites. Uh, Steve converted to the Catholic faith in 1994, and since that time has been an incredibly productive uh, teacher and leader. Uh, he's the author of a, a, a very deep book called Upon This Rock, which looks at the phenomenon of the papacy. This book we're going to talk about today, The Papacy, What the Pope Does and Why It Matters, doesn't go into the same kind of uh, scholarly detail that Upon This Rock does. But you may know him best as the host and producer of the Footprints of God DVD series. Uh, he has been to the Holy Land more than 130 times, and he uses that uh, experience uh, traveling the Holy Land, to really enliven his teaching in the series Footprints of God. Good to see you. Thanks, Al. It's yeah. good to be here. Let's go right to this. Uh, the doctrine of the... John Paul II in Ut Unum Sint offered non-Catholic Christians the opportunity to share with him what they think the papal or the Petrine ministry can best do to help Christians, help serve Christian community, and help produce unity. So he was, uh, as interested as he was in ecumenism, he, relinquishing the Petrine ministry can't be done. Right. I mean, it, it is, it's essential. It is part of the divine right. constitution of the church. And I want to so make that clear. And that's why it's important for us to know where, where this, uh, how this happened? Why do we have a pope? So, yep, it, it's a good point. What John Paul II, while he's doing, is like, if I live on my property, I'm the, I'm an owner of that property. It's mine. But I can say to my neighbor, what can I, what do you think that I could do to maybe get along better with you and keep our relations yeah. better? And that's yeah. what John Paul is doing. He's not relinquishing his no. property or his leadership no. over that house at all. No. But I think that's wise. We should all be willing to talk to people how we can best relate and do them. But in in this books, we start out with, imagine you're in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and then we hear the wind blowing, and something's happening, and Peter steps out and tells you about this Messiah that you just killed, and that you need to believe and be baptized and repent of your sins, and 
We give three scenarios. And by the way, I just want to thank Dennis Walters. He's a great friend. And, you know, yeah. before we go in there, this book wouldn't have been done without Dennis without Walters' Dennis, yeah. involvement. And, and he's just a great friend and, and did a great job with, with this, too. And this, it starts out, if you hear this wind and Peter preaches, it could have gone three ways. Everybody could have gone back and said, wow, that was an amazing experience. I'm going to go meditate on that in my room, and I'm going to think about that. But it really never changes anyone's life. It just becomes a, a personal meditation and a spiritual experience. Second option, each of the apostles could have gone out and started his own church. Right. Like independent Lone Rangers, you know, uh, the Church of Andrew, the Church of James, the Church of Peter, the Church of whatever. And then guys like Paul and Barnabas would have come along and started which their own churches. Human, <laughs> it, which is a normal exactly, human thing. <laughs> exactly. The normal human thing is to get into your own group that thinks like you and acts like you and smells like you. Right. And you guys just start your own little club here. Well, the th- that second option obviously didn't work either because they started one universal church, and for 1,500 years it remained that way under one leadership. And that is the third option, is that Peter could have come out and preached. All the apostles would have said, we are starting a new uh, government, basically, yeah. and we're going to be one. No matter how big this thing gets, it's always going to be under Peter because Jesus gave him the keys, not just for Jerusalem, but for the whole universal church. And the third option is what Jesus really founded. You know, an interesting thing that people don't usually think about, when I take people to the upper room, I ask how many people were in the upper room? And they say, well, 10, 20, no, the 12 were there, Mary, and they say, no, 120. Luke even says it in a funny way. There were about 120, and in the Greek it says names. It doesn't say people. That's like me saying about we had— About 120 names. About 120 names. That's like me saying we had about 53 names on our bus on yeah. the last trip, yeah. right? Yeah, So I asked why. That's kind of strange and curious. So I looked that up, both 120, that phrase. I found that in the Mishnah, which is a Jewish— um, tradition at the time of Christ. They were mm-hmm. finally wrote down their traditions. If you wanted to leave your major city, which had its own court and its own binding and loosing and legislative mm-hmm. judicial power and authority, if you wanted to leave and start your own on the other side of the river, you needed 120 people to do that. Interesting. And so what Luke is saying is we had about 120 names, almost like we had a list, and it was like a quorum, and we had enough now that we could go out and start our own new community with our own courts. It's not just a club out there. This is a government. Yeah, 10 times 12, too. Yeah. Time, authority to bind, authority to loose. It's a government. It can kick you out. It can bring you in. It sets the rule. It's the church. Yeah. And Interestingly enough, even today, the Knesset of Jerusalem has 120 members. Yeah. That goes all the way back to the first century. Yeah. So what, I, what is happening here is the papacy is, and the magisterium, those other apostles, have started a new government, and it is a government. And if it gets bigger, it's just going to still be the same government. Right. It'll have to expand. But there will always be Peter. There will always be the apostles and their successor, the bishops. And that's what we see today. This has been vital to your own conversion of the oh, Catholic absolutely. faith, and it's worth it's worth people hearing uh, why this question of authority was so important for you. Well, because we had the Bible alone. Yeah. I, why do you, Luther said, "I am my own pope and council. Who needs? We don't need popes and councils." And I remember my dad, or, and even saying, in, in, as we were Baptists, "Why does the Catholics? We just couldn't comprehend why would Catholics let some old man in Rome?" Tell them in America how to live their lives and what to do. This is just preposterous. We're a free people. We kicked kings and empires out of here 250 years ago, and we're now free people. Why would we subject ourselves to some old man? He's not even here. He's in Italy. 
Well, that was my whole concept of the Pope, that he was just an interloper who had uh, somehow come along and become the um, taken over authority and, and claimed that in the Middle Ages somewhere along the line. Well, when the whole idea was, well, actually, when you, Al Cressley, became went back to the Catholic Church, yeah. you threw our whole world into a tizzy. <laughs> well, one of the yeah. things I did was started looking it up, and I have it with me here upon this rock, yeah. where, see, for Janet, my wife, Becoming Catholic had a lot to do with worship That's and right. devotion I remember and that. prayer yeah. and all those I, things. I, you know. remember For me, it was a matter of authority yep. because I began to see Bible alone could not work. Basically, we didn't even have a New Testament for 400 years. How did right. those people right. – <laughs> they're the ones that lost their heads and burned in the fire. How did they know how to do all of that yeah. without a book? Yeah. The more practically you go back and think about how did this actually function, yep. how, the more you're drawn to – a Catholic understanding of things. Go ahead. Yeah, and so I knew that even you and I used to get together and all of our buddies, and, and we would have different ideas yeah. about what the Bible taught. My wife's a Presbyterian. They have infant baptism. I'm a Baptist. We do That's an evil Catholic tradition. So here in my own family, she's raised with infant baptism. I'm raised that it's terrible. And we're both evangelicals reading the Bible alone. Just one quick example. So there had to be more. I ran into Dave and Betsy French the other night. Oh, did you? Do you remember the debate that they had – Dave had – your house with another fellow. Oh, yeah. might have been Dave, too. Yeah. Uh, over, I can't remember if it was foreordination or predestination or something. Oh, yeah. But that was common to try to, we were all interested in figuring out what does the Bible really teach. And we had to because it was, a, Martin Luther didn't realize that when he got rid of one pope, he created a billion new popes because every Protestant is their own pope. Yeah. Yeah. There's nobody in Protestantism that claims to be the infallible teacher. It's me. I was Pope Steve. Janet was Popus Janet. Yeah. And we had to come up with that because if we really wanted to know what God wanted, we had to figure it out for ourselves. Well, anyway, that started the whole thing for me of conversion. And once I realized that there was a three-legged stool, there was written word of God, sacred tradition, and the magisterium of the church, that's what made me Catholic. Uh, the difference between Upon This Rock and this book, I alluded to it earlier, but these are two different books. Very different books. Yeah. Upon This Rock is a much more scholarly, it's like half the page is, is uh, footnotes. Right. right, And it is a source material, mainly what I want to do, Old and New Testament, dealing with the issue that there was intended to be a pope all the way from the beginning, that we're the new Israel, so you would expect that we'd have a similar source of authority that the first Israel had, right? They had three Moses came down with the word of God on stone. He had the tradition and the chair of Moses. And you would think that when Jesus says, you know, we're now the new Israel, that there's going to be a similar three-legged stool. There's continuity between the covenants. So what I did in this one is, especially in the scriptural passages, anything related to it, I deal with all of the Protestant and Orthodox challenges to us. And I have to say I decimate them. (laughs) I hate to say that. (laughs) Because I've had numerous, numerous... Uh, even Orthodox write and say they became Catholics because of this, because yeah. you can't argue with it with the history that I put into this. And so this is really a more scholarly, um, you have to work your way through this book. Yeah. Yeah, Whereas right. this one is more of a, a, a more approachable book is the way I'd say it. Yeah. It's easier to read. It doesn't have all the footnotes, although it does, a lot of quotes and footnotes, but it's a much simpler read. And what Dennis and I, this is the way I've tried to describe it, I guess, is that it's a A to Z of the papacy. It is a handbook of a job description, let's put it, of what yeah, the Pope's okay. job is. So when people ask me, oh, is this about Pope Francis? I say, yeah. no, it's not about Pope Francis, but it is his job description. Yeah. And you can evaluate how well he's doing by yeah. 
yeah. checking out what the job description is. Um, there is tremendous confusion about uh, the chair of Peter, the office of the Pope, and uh, you know, even among theologically conservative Catholics these days, uh, after a generation of you know, kind of defending, protecting, championing uh, Pope John Paul II and Benedict XVI, uh, a lot of more conservative Catholics are a little not quite sure what to make of Pope Francis, or they're resistant to certain of his acts, uh, his some of his prudential judgments, the way his ambiguities. Um, so there's a there's a new confusion, yes, about uh, the papacy and what we are required to believe about it. We'll come back and unpack that. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Steve Ray. We are discussing the Pope, why the Pope matters. Steve and uh, Deacon Dennis Walters have collaborated on a wonderful book called The Papacy, What the Pope Does, Why It Matters, Job Description. It is. It's yeah, a that's a good way of looking at this book. Uh, what is the Pope supposed to be doing? What do we know from history, from Scripture, right. from the teaching of the Church about the Pope's job description? And so uh, whether we're talking about John Paul II or Pope Francis or Alexander VI or whatever, Benedict IX, this has to, this can be applied. Right. Um, and, and by the way, there's nothing arrogant about having opinions. Oh, no. Regarding how particular men fulfill the, their duties as pope. So let's just not think. And I don't think it was arrogant saying it's a job description of the pope, because, but because what we've done is we've gone back in scripture and tradition and laid out what the church has always understand understood the office of the pope to be. Yeah. And I like I was saying just a second ago, it's like the banks they have a they had in order to help people catch a counterfeit dollar once in a while is the best ways to do it, have them handle only the real thing. Right. So when they right. see and that's kind of what we wanted to do here is to lay out what the real deal is, what the real job description is, what Catholic Church has always taught and believed about the papacy. Where's the scriptural basis for it? How are they elected? What is their job? All Who are the good popes? Who are the bad popes yeah. through history? Because we've had some really bad popes right. and some really good popes. Yeah. And so I, I think that when people read this, they will have like a benchmark where they can yeah. then look at any pope and decide how well they're doing their yeah, job. That's great. Now let's talk about, talk about the continuity between the covenants here. Uh, something we, with the pape, the chair of St. Peter, the Petrine ministry, is a, 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 an essential part of the church. It's part of the divine constitution of the church. That must mean it has its roots under the old covenant. Yes. It, right? Oh, it's certainly everything in yeah. everything in the church you have to understand it from the old testament. That's because where it comes from. Yeah. We are the branches, the fruit and the leaves. The church is not just fruit and leaves and branches, it's also a trunk and root and right. that's Israel. That's the old covenant. The way I I like to look at this is that in the old covenant Moses came down from the mountain, he had the written word of God. He had the the oral tradition, which wasn't written down, but they knew how to practice it, and it was the chair of Moses. It said in Exodus 18, Moses took his seat and judged the people. Now, there's this great set of commentaries by Kyle and Dalich. Mm-hmm. They're kind of the uh, the go-to Protestant, and they're very good, by the way. But he said in there, it was very interesting, that God gave Moses the infallibility, the infallible gift of interpretation. Yeah. I found that very interesting. Yeah. Because he's a, he's saying right there that they gave him the infallible 
gift of interpretation. That was an amazing thing. And, and again, I want to mention, this, these are uh, Protestant scholars, yeah. uh, late 19th, 20th century, early 20th century scholars. Yeah, so. And, and so if, if they're even willing to say that Moses had an infallible gift of interpretation, well then, when you come to the New Testament and you see the chair of Moses is transferred to the chair of Peter, Jesus says in Matthew 23, the scribes and Pharisees, they sit in the chair of Moses, therefore do whatever they tell you. Yeah. Don't do what they do because they're hypocrites, but do what they tell you. Right. So Jesus accepted the tradition of the chair of Moses. When he gives Peter the keys and says, you're the rock, he is establishing a new office. He's saying, we're now of a new covenant. We're gonna, it's a new Israel. It's going to look like the old Israel, but it's going to be different. Right. And so you are also going to have the written word of God, the scriptures. We're also going to have the tradition, and we're going to have the chair of Moses. Oh, no, Peter this time. That's right. And so what I like to say is that the Pope today is not sitting on a chair that's only 2,000 years old. He's sitting on a chair that's 3,500 years old because yeah. it goes all the way back to Mount Sinai. Uh, and so the, the key passage in the New Testament is Matthew chapter 16, verse, I think 17 to 19. And that itself is dependent, utterly dependent upon Old Testament. Isaiah 22. Yeah. When Jesus said, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom and what you bind on earth, you know, the rest of it. The keys of the kingdom, you say, what in the heck is that? Well, I thought as a Baptist, that meant that he gave us the gospel. We could go get Catholics to leave the Catholic church and get them saved. And then we have the keys to the gospel, right? right. The, the gospel right. is a key. And all of us can open the doors of heaven for people. But what happens is you look... If any good Bible has a cross-reference, when you read Keys of the Kingdom, it's going to take you back to Isaiah 22, where there was a royal steward. The king was in charge. He always had a royal steward who carried his keys. These are only one set of keys. You didn't take them to Aco or Kmart and have them reproduced. There's only one set of keys. They're big, long lumber keys, actually, like hmm. a two-by-four keys. Wow. They carried them over their shoulder. They had to slip through these big, thick doors, gates. And they'd carry them over their shoulder, and when they'd walk, they'd be going clunk, clunk, bang, bang. And everybody, it says in Isaiah, that they would refer to this royal steward as the father of Jerusalem. He had a special robe, a special office. He carried the keys of the king, and what he opened, no man would shut, and what he shut, no man would open. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> that takes you right. It's obvious what Jesus is saying in Matthew 16. It's it, it, right back to the Old Testament. Is your to a, a well-known institution. Exactly. Yeah. And not all of the royal stewards were good ones. In fact, this one here, Shebna, was a bad one. Right. And Isaiah was writing to remove Shebna. In Isaiah 22. In Isaiah 22. Yeah. He's yeah. removing a bad steward. He had all the authority. He didn't get rid of the institution or the office. Right. He got rid of the man who was there because he wasn't doing a good job, and he brought a new man named Eliakim in. So just because there's an office doesn't mean that everybody who fills it is going to be 100%. Well, let's, uh, in fact, let's go to that. Uh, um, I said earlier, I, I, I think we make a mistake if we think the Pope is beyond criticism. Yep. Tell us a little bit about what we know from some of the greats in our own tradition. When we first wrote this book, we didn't have this section in it. And the last few years, I said to Dennis, uh, Dennis, we've got to look back at a few things here because um, under Pope John Paul II and Benedict, I wasn't in finding a whole lot to criticize in these guys. I mean, I, I was a new Catholic right. at the time. But like you said earlier, there are some things here that are causing a lot of us pause. And do, I've had people say, if you criticize Pope Francis, or if you say that he says something wrong, or you don't do everything exactly like he says, you're a heretic or you're a schismatic. And that is a totally 
wrong yeah. concept of infallibility or the papacy. It, absolutely. It does not set the Pope up. He cannot predict the baseball scores tomorrow. He cannot tell me what the weather's going to be. Right. And if he talks about things outside of the scope of faith and morals, he can't be infallible because those are the areas only that encompass where he can exercise his gift of infa- charism of infallibility and only under certain very rigid circumstances. O- outside of faith and morals, He's subject to all the same um, criticisms that anybody would be who yes. published on a topic. Exactly, uh, it, the, the validity of his, <clears throat> excuse me, the authority of his opinion would be dependent on the kind of reasoning that went behind right. it, uh, the empirical evidence for it, and so he's to be judged in those areas. And and he knows that. This is nothing too. John Paul II knew that. Benedict knows it. it, it, knew, right. it knows it. And Pope Francis knows it. Right. And they can have opinions like on the environment or yeah. on, or on yes. immigration. Yes. And we should, out of understanding the office and, and the respect for that office, give deference. Of course. And, and uh, uh, an attempted loyalty to those ideas and yes. certainly give them a fair hearing. But on page 132 of the book, we added the section following the Pope, it's called, and I I didn't have to go really any farther than Galatians chapter two, yeah. verse eleven. This is, a, this is a great this is a great story too. It is. Yeah, go ahead. And and I don't want to go into all the theological background, but Peter had said that Jew, Gentiles did not have to be circumcised to become Jews. They did, it was done by faith. But when the Jews came, real quickly. Peter was avoiding the Gentiles and staying with the Jews because he wasn't practicing what he had preached. Right. He had taught infallibly, but he was being hypocritical right. in regards to his own teaching. Yes. So Paul says, I confronted Peter to his face to his because face. he stood condemned in public. Yep. Now, Paul's not the Pope. Peter is. Right. And Paul is just a bishop at this point, That's an right. evangelist. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he comes and confronts Peter to his face in public and says, you're a hypocrite. Yeah. Now, if that's the case, then popes are not um, immune from being criticized right. if they're doing it. It's I, right there on the pages of the New Testament. It is. And yeah. Thomas Aquinas and Augustine both picked up on that. And they, l- listen to what Thomas Aquinas says. If the faith were endangered, a subject ought to rebuke his prelate even publicly. Mm-hmm. Hence, Paul, who was Peter's subject, rebuked him in public on account of the imminent danger of scandal concerning faith. That's happening sometimes today. There's yeah. certain things being said that I think need to be confronted. Right. And as the gloss of Augustine, gloss, Augustine says, Peter gave an example to superiors that if at any time they should happen to stray from the straight path, they should not disdain to be reproved by their subjects. Right. right. And, you know, we know Catherine of Siena, who yep. really chastised the Pope for leaving Rome and going to Avignon, did not get um, pushed down or slapped for it. She became a doctor of the church. Yes, that's right. So we put this little section in just to show that there is good evidence why we should, and uh, it's quite legitimate to be able to, with great deference, of course, and love for the office, criticize someone who's teaching from it. I I think this, again, part of maturity as, as a Catholic is to understand exactly what the church teaches, uh, these are important matters, and uh, we can't be uh, we can't act blindly. Uh, the, we are never asked to deny um, uh, what the the pro- proper use of reason leads us to conclude. Right, you know, uh, and anybody who asks us to do that is really doing the work of the devil, uh, because they're splitting us. They're splitting our heart from right. our head. 
Um, and at the same time that we say that, you and I both know that we don't want to do anything of of speaking against any of our leaders in the church to the point of, of harming another younger brother's faith or someone who doesn't understand exactly. that. Or in any way to cause even the inkling of a schism or a division or right. a break in the church. To never, even if we would say we don't agree with this and we think that we should reevaluate what's been said here and there yeah. – and challenge maybe how things are being said. We never, ever would foment a schism or anything that would break away from the office. Right, right. Exactly. No, absolutely. I want to make that clear since we're talking about criticism. Yeah, I think that's good. I, that's very good. Um, you also deal with the post-relationship with other religions here, yeah, which, I, which is an unusual topic. Because it's that chapter is called The Pope and, as a Brother, and as the leader of the church, we do have to, whether we like it or not, relate to and correspond with other religions and ideas in the world. We, we're not on an island. Right. And so right. there's a huge um, religion of Judaism. So how do we relate to Judaism? There has been a mixed relationship there over the time from criticism and condemnation to mm-hmm. where we try to dialogue and recognize them as actually our older brothers in the faith. Steve, thanks so much. Uh, great talking with you again. And let me add, too, that when it comes to Islam— uh, the church's relationship to Islam is is very interesting. Uh, it in its documents, its teaching documents, the church talks about Muslims and their aspirations for God. Uh, the church doesn't uh, go on the attack against Islam, but in fact, Islam has been on the attack against Christianity uh, from its start because it rests on the idea that God has no son that God did not take on human flesh, that God is not triune. So while we have to show all respect for a Muslim's quest, hunger, desire for God, we can't uh, tolerate the errors of Islam. I'm Al Creston. Crestor with me, Steve Ray. The papacy, what the Pope does and why it matters. We've been covering a lot of ground in these segments. Let, let me go to some of the common, uh, and you deal with these in the book, common uh, attacks uh, and misunderstandings regarding uh, the papacy. We already dealt with one dealing with infallibility. Uh, exactly what is the extent of infallibility? It, it's limited to speaking on faith and morals. It does not refer to impeccability right. or perfect behavior. Um, uh, so when somebody, and it's still, um, in, in, it's always frustrating because this, this point is made over and over and over and over again, and yet people continue to say that, for instance, even now, uh, because of the crisis of uh, sexual abuse, that indicates that uh, papacy cannot be uh, true because inadequate attention was paid to the complaint of victims or uh, there was not sufficient pastoral oversight of priests. And so what the heck is the use of having a pope if they can't even keep priests from doing that kind of stuff? Well, that's, and I understand why someone would say that. I mean, let's face it, that's a, it's not an unreasonable right. response. Sure. 
Um, however, the church is made up of a lot of sinners, and that doesn't just mean me. I told Janet, my wife, that when we joined the Catholic Church, even if it was perfect, after I joined it, it would no longer be perfect because I know myself, and I would be make it quite imperfect. And knowing that, um, I think that popes in the past and the magisterium in the past have been derelict in not dealing with this issue when it's risen its ugly head of homosexuality in the yeah. church, even among the clergy <clears throat> and the bishops, mm-hmm. the whole thing with McCarrick. To have let that go by and treat it as though it was just a mosquito bite is, I think it was a huge miscalculation on the part of the magisterium and a huge um, and a drastic um, loss of disregard for their responsibilities, what they did. It doesn't remove the job of the office. Right. I I guess my argument I've used with a lot of people is under Bill Clinton, we had a pretty bad sex scandal in the White House. Right. And it didn't happen in public, uh, private property handled in the White House. in the White House, And this was our house. We own that house, not Bill Clinton. He's renting it from us in a sense. And he was there doing this egregiously sexual perversion in the White House. It doesn't mean that the White House or the office of the presidency is somehow no longer in existence or a bad office. The United States States is still a great country, and that office is still a great office. We just need to deal with the problem guy who's there and with the issues and reestablish the purity and the sanctity of that office. And so when the sex crime things came along, I just said to people, you know, you're leaving the Catholic Church because of that. But you saw what happened in the White House, and I didn't see you leaving the United States and saying, because of that, I'm going (laughs) to go change my citizenship to another country. You said, no, this is a great country, and that's a great office. Let's just get it cleaned up again. And I think that's the same way in the church today. There's a lot of people who are finding out in the magisterium who have overlooked these things, have winked at them, or even participated in them and covered them up. That's what we need to deal with. Yeah. Uh, It it comes up often in talking with non-Catholic friends who are interested in Scripture and pay attention to them, that James, not Peter, was the head of the Jerusalem church, and they look at Acts chapter 15, and they say, look— um, James seems to be the guy running the show there, not yep. Peter. And he was because he was being the pastor and the bishop of that of Jerusalem then. John Chrysostom, doctor of the church, has a beautiful thing. He says that James stood up and spoke because Peter was now had been moved out of Jerusalem. He was no longer the bishop of Jerusalem. He was now the teacher of the world. Yes. And where was he teaching the world? From Rome. Yeah. Okay? So James, when Peter left and went to Antioch, and then he left Antioch and became the bishop of Rome, somebody else had to become the bishop of Jerusalem. And who was it? It was James. Mm-hmm. And James stood up and spoke. He used two sources of authority. This is interesting. James stood up and said, folks, we have two sources of authority we're going to appeal to. And then as the bishop of Jerusalem, I'm going to suggest a pastoral approach that we do to this. First, I'm going to quote from the prophet Joel, who says that the spirit would come and all of this. And then Peter said among us that the Jews, the Gentiles do not need to be circumcised. Who does he quote? (laughs) He quotes Joel, the Old Testament prophet, and Peter equal to Joel, the authoritative teaching. And then he says, as a pastoral matter now, I think we should write a letter. And when he writes the letter, it says a decree, which in the Greek word is dogma. We're going to set a dogma which is binding on all of the churches, but it was under the authority of the church. Even Paul did not consider himself outside of that authority. He came back to Jerusalem, and and he said, I came back to Cephas for two weeks. I didn't see anyone else but Peter. And then I met with the others, and I received the right hand of fellowship so that I knew I was not preaching my gospel in vain. In other words, he came back to get the approval of the church for what he was teaching. Uh, Another uh, question that comes up, 
by often by anti-Catholics trying to score points is to say, oh, look, the, the Catholic Church is rich. Why don't they just sell off <laughs> all their assets and feed the poor? <laughs> couple of things. If you took all the Protestant properties and wealth that they have, all the different Protestant churches, and put it all together, they'd probably have a whole lot more than the Catholic Church does. And um, But it's easy to point at the Catholic Church because we're bigger than they are. Yeah. Second of all— Well, in the United States, they do have—I think there's more assets, Protestant assets. Oh, Protestant yeah. assets. Well, yeah. Why don't they sell their churches and do all of that <laughs> instead of pointing fingers at us? Now, that's one thing. The second thing is, is that most of that, what the Catholic Church owns, so to speak, is in real estate and hospitals and schools and churches. It's not in gold and silver in my pocket or the Pope's pocket. Third— most of the things at the church, that, like say for the Vatican Museum, all those riches and wealth, they're not owned by the Pope. They were given in trust to the right. church by people. Right. It's like I say, I, I have this marvelous painting, and it's worth $2 million, and I'm going to bequeath it to this museum. The owner of the museum, the president of the museum, doesn't own that painting. The, the museum owns it because that's where I gave it. The Pope can't turn around and sell all those things. Third, I mean fourth, I have a grandson named Dominic. Imagine... If I, I looked at St. Peter's one time and I said, I wonder what God thinks about all this wealth and this beauty in this church. If he doesn't think we should have spent the money somewhere else. And I imagine, say, my son, Dom, grandson Dominic, who works all year and makes as much money as he can and he buys the stuff and he builds me the most magnificent gift. He spends his whole year and every moment of free time and all his money and gives me this beautiful gift like we build churches for God. And I say, Dominic, I, you, you really should have used your money for something else. I can't accept this because you should have given that money to the poor. Can you imagine me saying that? We build churches because we love our Father in heaven. That's, we do this to glorify him and help others see how beautiful he is. And when God looks down and he sees it, he says the same thing I say to my grandson, Dominic. Dominic, that is the most marvelous thing. Thank you so much for that gift. Yeah, yeah. When you are out speaking and talking, and you associate with a lot of Catholics, so— that's important to keep in mind. What are the questions about the papacy that do come up most often now? It depends on what circle you're in, I yeah. guess. Okay. If you're in, I, I hate to use these terms, but everybody knows what they mean, the liberal, the conservative wing. If I think there's a huge dip misconception on what infallibility yeah. is, even among Catholics today. I've noticed that. They, they yeah. don't understand what the word infallible means and how it applies. Also among um, Non-Catholics, I think there's just as much confusion or more about infallibility and what the Pope does and and um, how much authority he has and that we have to obey everything he says, right. that, that he's like a dictator, almost like a cult leader. Yeah. And yeah. he can dictate everything that we do and say. And uh, that's a very a big mis- misconception. On the other side is, is that um, that – you can't criticize him, which we've already discussed. And if you do, you're a schismatic or you're not really Catholic. If you if you don't like everything the Pope says, you should just not be a Catholic. Well, that <laughs> no, that's not the case. Right. Right. There's a lot of misconceptions about that, what the unity of the church is, how the magisterium works, how scripture, tradition, and the— and the um, sacred scripture and the magisterium work together, how mm-hmm. those three work. I, I see those basically just on that topic alone to help understand it, is I, I have this example of a playground that children are out playing in the playground, and it's like they're studying the Bible. You know, they're yeah. studying the Bible, and they're enjoying it and everything else. But one falls off a cliff, one gets bitten by snakes over on the side, and there's all these fraught with dangers on all the edges. And you just say, oh, my goodness, that's horrible. The kids are being decimated. But then if you... 
look at that playground again. Say they build a fence around that playground, and then they have supervision. Now the playground is like the Bible in the Catholic life. You can study it, and you can learn, and you can be a Catholic. But there's a tradition of the church is the fence around to keep us safe. And the ma- the supervision is the magisterium of the church, the bishops and the the yeah. pope and so on. And so Catholics, we have the whole thing. We have the Bible. We are the playground. We can learn and study and read, but we have the supervision of the of the magisterium, and we have the fence of the tradition, which keep us safe in yeah. a sense. So, yeah. I think there's a lot of these misconceptions about how these all work together and how much authority the pope has. I'm, I'm wondering if there's not a misconception about. This is just my own personal thing that bishops, I think, should have be able to say more than they do. I think bishops should have more. Paul confronted Peter. I I, I agree. And I find our bishops, I'm sorry to say, spineless much of the time. Not all of them, but you know what I mean. I do. They they should confront. They should deal with these issues and not be worried about the politics of it. Yeah, it's... um it's hard to figure out why in a church in which they essentially are the papal figure in their diocese, why there isn't more uh, fraternal correction, why there isn't more uh, healthy give and take. And hey, yeah. I disagree with you, brother. I yeah. mean, it, there's this veneer of collegiality. Yeah, or almost of a fear. Yeah. Almost a fear to speak out or to say what they think is right. Something has come up recently that I didn't hear much of years ago, but it's been coming up recently, and that is to dismiss Pope Francis as merely the Bishop of Rome. And I've actually I've heard that from both those from a theologically liberal point of view and those from a more conservative point of view. What is the relationship between the Pope as Bishop of Rome and the Pope as global, as uh, you know, world that the, well, the, the pastor of the Catholic Church, every, actually the pastor of Christianity. Every diocese has a bishop, and every bishop has a chair, and the chair is called the cathedra. Mm-hmm. And the church that the bishop has is called the cathedral because the cathedra is in the cathedral. That's what it means—a church with a chair. In Rome, the Church of St. John Lateran, when we take our groups there, there's a big uh, medallion on both sides of the front door. It says, Mother Church of the World. And where, <laughs> what's in that Mother Church of the World is the chair of Peter. Yes. And that is the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, has from the beginning of time. That's why I like this book, Upon This Rock, because I demonstrated from the first century, nobody contested the idea that the chair of Peter in Rome was the chair of the church. And it had authority over the whole church. The bishops had their authority in their diocese, mm-hmm. and they had a collegial authority with Rome. But Rome had a—it wasn't a bishop of bishops, but he was the preeminent, preeminent yes. bishop, and he had he had authority over the whole church because Peter had been given the keys. The other guys weren't given the keys. Right. They were given authority to bind and loose, but they weren't given the keys. There's only one set of those. Remember, you don't That's take right. those to Aco yeah. Hardware and make copies. <laughs> And so um, that that has always stood. And when the Pope left and went to Avignon, you know what St. Catherine of Siena did. She chastised him, and he came back to Rome yeah. because that is the chair. That's where it's supposed yeah. to be. Yeah, yeah. And it is interesting, isn't it, that the, that the Avignon papacy and other problems with the papacy created uh, an environment in which it was easy for some of the magisterial reformers to doubt the the integrity yep. of the papal office. Exactly. We often forget that. Yep. It is. That they were living in the aftermath of that confusion. Yep. Uh, so, um, uh, well, we're out of time. I just heard the music come up. 
Amazing. was going to ask you another question. People, how do they get the book? My website, catholicconvert.com. If they buy it, they get a copy also of my book, Crossing the Tiber, my latest talk on angels. Oh, very good. But you can also get it at Ignatius Press, but catholicconvert.com. Go to the menu, Products. Steve, thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Al. Steve Ray. Again, the book is called The Papacy, What the Pope Does and Why It Matters.